0: We're going to move into today's scripture, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. We're back in the Beatitudes for the second time. We're going to be here several more weeks. We just ended our series in the book of Ruth. Um, And Beatitudes, I I actually never taught through the Beatitudes in in Matthew 5. And it's been actually quite weighty as I've been prepping and thinking through the Beatitudes, how significant the words of Jesus is in in Matthew 5. Um, So I want to really encourage you guys as we walk through the Beatitudes, let, let this not just be a nice little talk on the sayings of Jesus, but let it really be part of your life, right? If, even if it's five minutes in the morning or five minutes at the end of your, life, end of your day, to just read and meditate about what, what what is Jesus really saying when he says these things. These are some really interesting things for a teacher to say, but for us to really consider uh, but if you're just joining us, just give us the context of the story or, or, or where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus enters the scene. Uh, he, some, uh, some Gospel writers describe Jesus going into a synagogue and reading from Isaiah 61, right? I've come to fulfill the law, right? To fulfill the freedom for those that are captive. Uh, he enters the scene in, in the Gospel of Matthew, begins his ministry, he chooses. Some random group of men, seemingly random, but Jesus intentionally chooses these men to follow him. And then all of a sudden he goes throughout the region. He was in Galilee, region of Galilee, teaching and healing. Healing was a big part of Jesus' early ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. And the sick are healed, the blind, blind are able to see, the deaf ear are able to hear for the first time. Demons are casted out and, and Jesus is extremely popular. Everybody wants to see Jesus. This is a scene in Matthew 5. And at the height of his popularity, he takes hold of that moment. He won't lose this moment. And, and, and not to expand his ministry, right? his healing ministry or his fame, not to grow his team of disciples, not to gain some kind of greater sense of influence or power, Because he could have done all of these things at the height of this momentum. But he stops everything. He stops all of his ministry all of a sudden. And then he goes up to a mountainside, invites the crowd, and begins to actually teach. Give a sermon. Important, interesting, that Jesus would do this at the height of His popularity, that everybody in Jerusalem, everybody outside of Jerusalem, everybody all over Israel wanted to see this chief teacher. And Jesus, knowing that he stops and begins to teach what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. And we are at the introduction part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. But really to the Jews, they understood what Jesus was doing. Right? They, they understand when a leader goes up to a mountain, gives them a new way of life. They know Moses. Many, many years after the slavery in Egypt, after Yahweh saved them from the hands of Pharaoh, Moses goes up to a mountain called Mount Sinai and gave them these new commandments, Ten Commandments. So Jesus is really showing himself to be the greater Moses. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 proclaim the good news to the poor the first beatitude that we're going to be covering is talking about poverty very clear that's the first thing that Jesus talks about no other religious teachings in the history of mankind has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the words that we find in Matthew 5 really this non-christians Christians deeply impacted by Jesus' words in Matthew 5 There are eight blessings in the introduction of this sermon. There are eight blessings. If you count, there's nine, but eight and nine are repeated. And next several weeks, we'll take time to unpack each one. But today we begin with verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Turn to each other for a second. It doesn't have to be a stranger. It's kind of awkward. But turn to someone you came with or a stranger is fine. And tell them, bless it. Just look, just look. It's all right. Bless it. Bless it are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Think about that. Very awkward, but very interesting what Jesus says. But before we go into unpack this idea of what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think it's worth mentioning the importance of how intentional Jesus is when ordering these eight Beatitudes. They're not just random list of virtues or things that we ought to pursue. They're actually intentionally structured and ordered in a way. It's almost like if you guys playground many years ago. Parents, we go to playground all the time. We sort of hate playground, right, by this time. But there is this rings, So right? Imagine these rings across the playground. And in order to get to the third ring, you need to get to the second ring. In order to get to the fourth ring, you need to get to the fifth ring. It's, these beatitudes are structured and organized in a way, they're not just random orders. You can't achieve the seventh beatitude without getting to the sixth. You cannot get to the sixth without getting to the fifth, actually. Jesus is very intentional when he talks about these in this order. Each of the eight flows from the others that went before. In fact, the only way to get to the latter, you must go through them by order in the, in the way the message is given. This means the only way to get to the fifth be attitude of forgiveness. In order for you to be able to forgive someone and, and get to the sixth, Beatitude of purity, to, to get to a place where your, your heart is pure, pursuing purity, you got to go through the previous rings. So that's why Jesus begins this whole Sermon on the Mount and, and this beatitude with our need, our, or, or maybe our reality of who we are. Only those who realize our true state without God, poverty and mourning desperate, we can become truly pure in heart, become those who make peace. Another way to look at the ordering of the Beatitudes, it's imagine a healthy tree. Picture of a healthy tree. Hel- every healthy tree has three major components. They're probably you're like, if you're like a scientist, you're like that's time they're, they're 15. But just, I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. But three main components. They have the roots, the shoots, and fruit. Roots, shoots, fruit. First three Beatitudes, verses three to five, they're known as the roots. They're the foundation. These are the things we need to have secure in order for us to be able to grow. We're poor in spirit because we don't have what it takes to live as God commands. We mourn because our sins are many. We become meek rather than self filled and defiant because we know we can't direct our lives wisely. They are the roots of a blessed life. Without this, there is no righteousness. There is no peacemaking. And out of these roots of being meek, uh, mourning, and being poor, come the shoots of the fourth beatitude, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. God uses the root of sensing your need to grow the shoot of longing for righteousness. And the rest of the Beatitudes are really fruit. After the fourth one, five six, seven, eight, nine, five, six, seven, eight, 9 is again repeat. They are fruit of having strong foundation, having strong roots, having strong branches. And from there, you can begin to live these things out. Fruit of becoming more and more like Jesus, right? Merciful, purity in heart, peacemaking, enduring even the most vigorous persecution. So this is what it means, actually, when Jesus says you are the salt of the world, you are the light of the world. Every follower of Jesus is known by the distinguishing marks that Jesus mentions here. Yet these marks are mere evidence of our new life in Christ, not its cause. We've got to remember, this is not Ten Commandments where Jesus is saying, you've got to follow all these things to get in. No, you are already invited Salvation through faith in Christ is the only that gives only which that gives us new life, not its cause. That's why Jesus begins with Blessed are poor in spirit. So poverty in spirit, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because this is the only time in all of Scripture this word poverty is used. This particular word poverty is used. This is it. We're in Matthew's gospel. But in Luke's gospel, another gospel writer, Luke's gospel also includes this teaching that Matthew has for us in Matthew 5, right? Luke's teaching on beatitude emphasized, emphasis was on those who are struggling, who are living punishing physical poverty. Luke does not say, blessed are our poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor. Whereas Matthew does not. Matthew clarifies It's not just being poor, but it's poor in spirit. And I think it's important that we recognize the conscience. We talk about the differences between Luke and Matthew. You see, Luke singles out the really poor, hungry, and crying. And it is good that we have a social evangelist who heard Jesus and point us in this direction. The gospel is for the physically and not only for the spiritually poor. Because I think when we read this passage in Matthew and when we live in a fairly affluent life compared to the rest of the world we think, oh, it's just spirit. No. God cares deeply about the poor. God is greatly concerned for those who have not enough to live. God cares deeply about injustice and inequality of wealth. And that's not debatable throughout scripture. God talks about that. Yet, some people could look, listen to Luke and say, L- Luke is right. Jesus only cares about the poor. It could be overinterpreted, right? It could be overemphasized. And it could be misunderstood by many, right? If we're not careful, Luke's Jesus can sound very different from Matthew's. God sides with the poor against the rich. Is this the God that we serve? And that's been the message of theology known as the liberation theology, which came out of mid-20th century, out of Latin America. Liberation theology, this idea of God favors poor over the rich, physically poor over the physically rich. At the core of their belief, they argue that God favors poor over the rich, right? The more miserable you are, God loves you more. Yet we know, throughout Scripture, God's favor is not earned. It's not merited by what we do or who we are, right? So, so God, God does not love the poor more. That's very obvious. And, and even poverty cannot be the reason why God loves one person more than the other. In a big yet, we, we, can, we cannot ignore the warnings against the wealthy, the numerous Warnings against wealth and possession and what it does to us. Although God doesn't favor the poor over the rich, again, we cannot downplay the real danger we face as those who live with great means. I mean, you could be the poorest person in this room. You could have the worst car in this room. Yet, if we really place ourselves where we are with the rest of the world, we know we are doing pretty well. I don't have to give you stats to help you realize we are doing pretty well. We have a pretty good life. We have a house to live. We're not, we're not many of us don't even know what it, feel, what it really feels like to be hungry because we just eat when we, it's time. Because we have food, you open a fridge. Sometimes I go to Costco and I'm just like, we spend How much? I got two little girls, me and my wife, like, you know, I got to lose weight. I don't have to go to Costco, right? We think about how, and I go to America. My mom has like four fridges, and I, they're, they're two people. I'm like, what do you have? Fridge in the garage, fridge in, in the TV room. Like, I, I visit my friends in America, and they all have this dining table, and they never eat there. I, I'm, I was like, I'm so confused. Like, this is a dining table, but you have a kitchen. We eat at the kitchen, but we have a dining table. But we never eat there, right? It's, I mean, we have so much. But, but we cannot downplay the real danger we face as those who live with great means. At the same time, we cannot demonize our wealth, right? That's, that's another way to be able to misunderstand God. James 1, 9, 11, in, in the letter to the church, James... Many know, know him as the brother of, J, brother of Jesus. He says, he says this, G, James speaks, let me, let me read. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower at the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James speaks clearly about dangers of money and false sense of security that money often provides for us. We think we're doing really well, we're going to do well forever. No, James says no. It, one day you're up, one day you might be down. Many of us that have invested into crypto, we know what that means, right? Up, up and down, right? In fact, there's, there's more than a metaphorical connection between poverty, physical poverty, and poverty of the spirit. Situational poverty, if you think about it, encourages poverty, poverty of the spirit. The mother, a mother who cannot afford to take her or, his or her child to seek medical help, knows she needs to cry out to God. In many ways, the poor are less tempted to seek their joy in their home on this side of eternity. That's true. Yet poverty embraced for its own sake is as spiritually as dangerous as wealth. Those who choose poverty or simplicity as a way of making themselves righteous over others live under just as much illusion as the wealthy man who thinks his wealth can save him. Like being proud that you drive an old car or you live in a small house is just as sinful as being proud that you drive a new car or a bigger house. If living with less makes you feel better about yourself and more worthy of God's love and respect and blessings, it also takes you away from being poor in spirit. You could be poor, you could live like a poor man, and still be poor in spirit. So Matthew comes along, along. there's Luke. Matthew comes along and gives a broader understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. Matthew and Luke is translating into Greek what was originally said by Jesus in Aramaic. So Matthew and Luke themselves are trying to understand and translate well for the listeners what Jesus first said in Aramaic, right? There's this... Translation here, and Matthew wants to give us a greater, greater clarity. And he says, Jesus did not simply come to those who are living in punishing physical poverty, but also, also those who are experiencing poverty of the Spirit. So when we say, if we say that blessed are poor in spirit, this includes the physically rich as well, so we can breathe, <laughs> all of us, we could be here. But the key for both, for the poor and the rich, is to recognize, for you and I to recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt without God, without His grace. So blessed are the poor in spirit is anyone who groans in his or her spirit under poverty, who is on the way down and who cries out to this person, Jesus. To this person, Jesus announces, Look up, I am here, and my kingdom is for you. The word poor in Greek, in Matthew's Greek, is tochoi, which speaks of people who are not just middle, lower class. Not just like, we have enough, but we want more. It's speaking of people who must completely depend on someone else to survive. Simply put, the gospel poor in spirit are people who recognize they're utterly helpless without God and his help. So the great enemy, when you think about the great enemy of the gospel, we assume the great enemy of the gospel, great hindrance to the gospel, is poverty, suffering, and misery. That's what we assume. But when you think about it, it's not pain, it's not hardship. More times than not, often the great enemy of the gospel is our successes, is our titles, is our wealth, our possessions. Because why? Just like what James said, they create a terrible sense or false sense of security. It is what creates an unhealthy sense of pride that Jesus speaks against, not only in Matthew 5, but Luke 18. The story, you know, this famous parable of Luke 18, 9 to 14. Two men arrive to the temple to pray. Just like we're here at the church, two men, Jewish men, arrive to the temple to pray. Two very different people. A Pharisee, the man who's standing up, raising his hand, is a religious man, a man who has accomplished much in his life, a man of great title and perhaps wealth. And he's Happy to be there. He's excited to come worship and pray. In the the same room, there's another man in, in the back who is not as religious, at least externally. He doesn't have a great title tied to his name. In fact, he's a tax collector, which means at best he's a crook, he's a traitor. And Jesus tells us they both came to pray. And the man who was standing up, verse 11, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, that I am not unjust, that I am not an adulterer, that I am not like this tax collector behind me, that I fast twice a week, I give tithes to everything I make. You see, not only is he physically wealthy, he assumes that what? He's been favored by God because of all he has done, right? Fasting, praying, and giving. His problem isn't that he is not spiritually disciplined. It's that his discipline has made him proud. This is a, this is a prayer of a man who does not understand his own brokenness. It's that he believes God will be impressed because he's done what others have failed to do. I'm sorry to tell you, there are many, many people like this man in many churches. Many, 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 many men like this in many churches. On the other side, verse 13, there's this tax collector standing far off. Would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, what does he say in verse 13? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He does not try to negotiate with God. He does not try to impress God. He does not try to put himself on the scale with others. He doesn't say, well, I'm not as bad as this this Pharisee. I'm not as hypocritical as this Pharisee. He says, God, I'm deeply lost and broken. I'm poor without you. And Jesus' is only one man out of the two went home restored in his relationship with God. And it wasn't The Pharisee, the rich religious man. Why? Because he has no clue how desperately he is lost without God and his mercy. Friends, self-righteousness wears many disguises. You see, the most most scary thing about self-righteousness, take it from me, I I, I, I could go there really, really well, especially when people know me, I could get there really well. The most scary thing about self-righteousness is that we don't see it in ourselves. Like, as I get older, like, I, I meet people, my wife's there, we'll talk, and then often Lois is like, why do you talk so much? Why do you tell people how to live their life, right? I'm like, I had no idea. I thought we are having a great conversation. I'm just like, you know, we're just chatting it up. And she's like, dude, stop telling people how to live their life. I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, I see it. But I don't see it. When I'm doing it, I don't see it. I'm, like, literally, like, I'm thinking we're having a great conversation, and Lois is like, you are so annoying. I'm like, oh, I think about it. Yeah, I, I was really annoying. It's, uh, self-righteousness is like that. We don't even know we're doing it. We think because of our religious practices that we're okay with God. And we think because of how we pray that we're trusting in Him, not in ourselves. We think because how we live that we're going to do, we're to be, we are doing better than the people around us. But one of the clear signs of self-righteousness person is that they could sniff out the sins and the shortcomings of everyone around them, yet not in themselves. So when I drive, people think I have a like road rage. I don't have road rage, okay? But but I, I do I do have I do get anno- annoyed occasionally every time I drive, right? So when I'm on the on the road, every time I'm driving, I, I, I all of a sudden I become like like this instructor, like driving instructor, right? And if someone cuts me off, I don't just judge what they do, I judge who they are, right? So if, if, if we're, I'm waiting in line to make the left, right, and if someone comes all the way up to cut in front of me, you know what I do? I pull up and I look at them. Like I won't let them in, I'll look at them, and I'll be like, no, no, no. I'll like give them a big Korean no, right? Like the big Korean no. But I realize I, I, I'm, I'm so judgmental because I'm not just thinking, oh, this person is misbehaving or just just not a great driver, I'm thinking, man, they're greedy. They don't want to get to wherever they're going before I get to where I want to go. Or they're selfish. Like, I, I really think these things out loud. And my, my, my girls are in, in the back, right? And sometimes I don't even catch myself, and I just get so upset, and, and I overreact when people do something just to turn around, right? To do the same thing. Like when, I'm, when I need to get somewhere and I'm late, guess what I do? I do the same thing without even thinking about it. Uh, you know, one thing I hate is when people, like, I, I let them in and they don't do the emergency light. That drives me crazy. Hey, guys, if you're a new driver in Seoul, you got to do the emergency light, okay? When, when someone lets you in, do the emergency light. That means thank you, all right? Especially in this area, okay, you don't you don't want to catch me with that, okay, emergency light. But but again, that's just my driving. That's just an example of how I think when I'm driving. But that that seeps out in so many areas of my life. The way I talk to my friends, the way I talk to our staff, the way I think about talk to you know, Yehan Church, and as we work on this relationship of us renting and them renting the space. I mean, I become so. I find myself just, like, falling into this. And and and, and I really had to stop. Because after a while, I realized, man, I'm just becoming a complainer, right? We'll go to a nice restaurant, we sit down, and instead of, like, telling Lois, like, oh, isn't this great? I'm like, oh, this was better last time. This could be a little better. I mean, they could have better. Like, older I get, I, 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 I catch myself becoming more and more of this, like, judge of this sort of Grumpy person. Whose kid is that? I'm, just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> That's perfect moment. But but again, the way I work, the way I parent, the way we do things, we have to think about that. It's just because we go to church. It's because we tie. Just because. Just like this man, right? Just like this man. We could assume, oh, we're doing great. We could assume, oh, because we pray, God is answering my prayer when things are going well. Yet, you know, the worst thing I hear is when someone had worked for a Christian boss, and they tell me they're, they were the worst boss. They would invite me to Bible study, they would maybe come to church on Sunday, but they are a terrible boss. And I'm, I'm like, that's, that's a terrible witness. Not to say we have to be perfect people. But it really matters how we treat those that are around us. Friends, the paradox, and I'm almost done, the paradox of the beatitude. First beatitude is that Jesus sides with those who fail. That's the encouraging part. Jesus sides with those who fail and who feel this failure. So the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most important teachings of Jesus... Are not rules. I'm not saying you gotta be the great boss, but you gotta recognize that sometimes you're not great boss. You gotta recognize that you have failed and you recognize we have failed. So Jesus says, Blessed are those who are spiritually inadequate. That's what he's saying. Blessed are those who are spiritually inadequate and they recognize that they need me. In fact, the purpose of all teachings and commands, what Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, is to drive you and I back to this first beatitude, that we cannot be the salt and light of the world on our own, that we cannot master our own anger, our own lust, our own greed without the giver of life. One commentator says, I think it's Frederick Brunner, he says this, The Sermon on the Mount is actually the sermon from the valley. It starts low. It starts where most of us live, if we're honest. The sermon starts with those who feel very unlike mountains. Every command in the Sermon on the Mount, taken seriously, ought to drive all of us back into the valley of the first Beatitudes and its life-giving spring. So friends, blessed are those who recognize our own bankruptcy without God. And, and you've heard it many times, even on this pulpit, that Jesus did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the great paradoxes of Jesus' ministry in this is that he makes the poor rich. Rich. He makes the weak strong. That he makes the foolish wise. He makes the guilty righteous. Dirty he makes clean. The lonely he loves. The worthless he values. The lost he finds. The have-nots become haves. You have a pastor who has road rage. And who is self-righteous. Gets to preach. Not because I wear a nice suit or because I've studied the text, but because of what Jesus did for me. And I could be okay recognizing, man, I'm not a great husband all the time, that I'm not a great father all the time, that I'm not a great boss all the time, that I drive Sandra crazy probably every other day. Sandra's our operations manager. And recognizing and saying, Lord, I need you. To become a better boss. Lord, I need you to become a better father. Lord, I need you to become a better husband. Right? That's where we start. And that's not only where we start, that's where we return throughout the Beatitudes. Amen? Should I talk about wealth and what we should no, I'm not gonna go there. I thought, oh that's another sermon. But think about it, guys. Last week we gave a call. Hey, Turkey, Syria, what is it, fifty thousand now? Numbers Heartbreaking, right? I said, hey, let's, we invite our church to give, okay? I'm challenging you guys. Here's a way you can, you can live out what it means to be generous, right? This, this is an invitation to you guys. This is an opportunity. I hope we are generous as a church. And we think about these incidents, that it's not just other side of the world that we think about it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of what it means to be poor in spirit. Lord, it is our confession that often we are not like that tax collector in the back beating our chest, saying we are a sinner, that we need your mercy. Instead, we are often like the Pharisee, in the front, telling you all the things they've done, almost feeling entitled to be able to come, entitled to a life of blessing. Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you remind us that it's only through you the life that you lived, that you died, that we're able to come, we're able to experience. Jesus, because you became poor, because you became wretched. we are able to experience wealth. We're able to experience invitation. Lord, help us not to forget why we are where we are and lord if there is any conviction here help us carry this out uh, to to go and live differently lord we thank you we love you jesus in we pray amen